The Real Estate Sessions is brought to you by Relola. The Relola app helps agents leverage their local expertise. Create a beautiful interactive map of everything you love about your community, from businesses to listings to local features. Share it on Facebook and your website. And it's free for all realtors in 2018. Learn more at relola.com. The most expensive home I've ever sold, the highest price home I've ever sold, is $388,000. In all of my transactions I've ever been a part of, all 1,100 of them, the highest price was three eighty eight. And I should tell you that I sold a lot of Baltics and very little boardwalks. (laughs) And for me, that means that every single dollar that I spent in marketing had to mean something because I had small margins. I couldn't make mistakes. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 119 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for downloading the show and sharing it with a friend. It's how we continue to grow. I really appreciate the reviews and ratings. So if you feel up to it, head on over to iTunes and and slap one on there for me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm really excited about today's guests. I, I, I love people that are great storytellers. And I have seen this guest uh, multiple times on stage just really captivate an audience um, in, in talking about business and life. Uh, I'm really excited to ask him some questions, and I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. Uh, I have Imran Pilati, the uh, Vice President of Business Development with Next Home uh, on the show. Imran, welcome to the podcast. Bill, thank you very much. I appreciate you asking me to be on here, actually. Caught me off guard when, you hear, when I heard that you wanted to talk to me, so here I am, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, first of all, you know, I like to find out where people come from and let's start geographically. I know that you're currently in Northern California, but I believe you're a NorCal native. Am I right there? I am. I was born and raised in a city called Stockton, California. Many of you may know exactly where that is because it was known in the recession as the foreclosure capital of America. <laughs> uh, about one, one in five houses in my, my area were in foreclosure of some form or fashion in the in the recession. So uh, we're unfortunately infamous for that. But I'm located about 45 miles south of Sacramento and uh, right in the heart of the San Joaquin Valley. Although we went through our challenges, it's where I was born and raised. I've lived there now. Uh, I love the city and it's a special place to me. Give me, now you're south of the Bay. Give me kind of a misconception about that part of California, the things that people think about when they, when they talk to you and you go, no, that's not what we're like. No, they, the number one thing is that they think that all of our properties are million dollar properties. Mm. And while that may be the case in coastline areas or the Bay area, I'm uh, 45 minutes south of Sacramento and about an hour and 15 minutes east of San Francisco. So I'm right in that pocket of the Valley. We're well known for our agriculture and what we have there. And our average sales price in our city is just under 250, 250,000. Um, so there are affordable homes in our area versus some of the misconceptions of the cities of these million dollar you know, McMansions. That's not what we have in our city. We do have obviously some luxury, but for the most part, blue collar community and the pricing is adjusted right to fit that blue collar community. 
Right. That makes sense. I, I grew up in uh, Southern California. And when you got into the East County of San Diego, you know, 15, 20 miles inland, it's a whole lot different than right on the coast. Even just that short a distance makes a difference. So, and, and, and that does pose a challenge when I travel to work. So my home office for next home is in Pleasanton, California, which is roughly about 45 miles away from my house. But it takes me over an hour and a half to get there. Right. So, um, yep, you know, that's what comes with the territory. But uh, again, the affordable nature of where I live helps ease that pain. A lot of the guests on the podcast, the majority of them, real estate was a second or even third career. But I, I think you're a little different. I think you got into this game at a, at a young age. Am I right about that? You're correct. I'm yeah. currently 40. Uh, just turned 40 about a month ago. And I started this real estate industry at 23. Wow. Very young. Now, don't forget, I I did have a career before this, but I realized quickly that I hated it. I was a police officer for the city of Mountain View, which is in the Bay Area. uh, And I did that for a few years before realizing, boy, I I really hate every minute of this. Um, It just wasn't for me. And I bummed around trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because uh, I didn't have any formal education, didn't go to college and really worked that police officer angle until uh, I decided to quit. And then I'm like, what do I do now? So I bartended, I bust tables and things like that while I was trying to figure out myself. And then at age 23, I decided to give real estate a try. It was an office that said real estate agents wanted. And I drove past it every day as I went to my bartending job. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go in there. I came in there with my spiky hair and my saggy jeans. And I said, I think I want to try real estate. And here I am. 16, 17 years later. You're about the 12th person on the podcast that, that mentioned bartending before they got into real estate. <laughs> it's, I, think there's, I think there's some there's value to being able to understand how to talk to people because as a bartender, isn't your job to sit there and get people talking and you know, kind of get them engaged? And it, it kind of, it kind of that, that, that skill flows over into real estate, doesn't it? Listen, I was 22 years old. Let's be selfish for a second. I wanted to sleep in until 11. Yeah. And I wanted to work late. I wanted to have cash in my pocket. That was the job for you, right? I was the Tom Cruise. Of, I was the Filipino Tom Cruise in cocktail. That's nice. I mean. But the but the point of it is, but the point of it is is that it caused me to learn some inter, inter, how to interact with people, be able to talk to different versions of people, and also know when I don't like people and how to disengage. So uh, I learned a lot in the people skills with that job. And I think that as people grow their brokerages and they're looking to add new talent, always looking to the food industry field or the restaurants or hospitality service is a good start for people to coming into this business that may uh, be brand new. Yeah, makes sense. Tell me what your first year was like selling real estate. So the first year I sold real estate, I was what I call part-time. Uh, I, As I teach and I instruct people now in brokerages, I hate the word part-time, full-time. You know, those two words, I, it's just not for me. I, I believe in committed and non-committed, right? Because I know a lot of people that have a full-time job that are committed to real estate and doing well. And for me, uh, I was committed. And of the 14 transactions that I closed, Uh, I thought that that was really poor in my first year. Um, And then we went to the Christmas party at the end of the year and I looked and I came in fourth out of my office of 26 people. And I remember going up there for my quote unquote award, my little ribbon. 
And I remember looking out at them and going, if I do this with a full-time job and I'm doing 14 transactions and I'm doing fourth in this office, I could really kick butt if I put some real effort behind this. So I quit my job bartending and consistently began selling about 20, 20 to 25 houses a year for my first four or five years. So what, what time frame are we talking here? This takes us up to the, the mid-2000s? 2000, 2002. Okay. Uh, I started late 2002, and then that led up to roughly about 2008, end of 2005, beginning of 2006. Bill, it was a very different time, let's be honest. Okay. At that time, the market was climbing. I happened to be good because I was there. I didn't put any real skill into it. The sign goes in the yard. It's a hot market, multiple offers. The length of time on days on market wasn't dependent on how your marking was. It was the length of time on market was based on the negotiations of the counters of which one you were going to select. Right. It was a hot time in Northern California where we we're seeing incredible growth in uh, sales and, and year over year pricing. And obviously that contributed towards the, the big crash that we had in my city. So I, I don't want to take any credit that I was good. I was just there. And I think that I, I can't even say that I would even work with my version of myself back then. I was just there and I filled out paperwork and I did it consistently and I showed up and I wrote contracts and things went together. Um, it wasn't until later in life in my career that I actually put effort and became good. Where the skills became necessary to, to acquire Absolutely. customers. The NAR statistics for buyers and sellers say that the client works seven out of 10 times with the very first person that works with them, that talks to them, that responds. So I just happen to be very good at being there. You hit a major roadblock in your career and your life in 2007. Um, you were diagnosed with cancer. Talk about how you approached this challenge, how you, know, how you were able to work your way through this. And, and really, you kept working at this time, I believe. So talk about that. Okay, so uh, 2007, I went to the doctor, spent some time there, and found out that I had stage two testicular cancer. I just moved to Keller Williams from my small independent, so I was ready to really ramp up and pay attention. And it coincided with two major factors. Number one factor was obviously my health, and the number two factor was that our entire area was completely crashing in the real estate market. So people that were having very successful years the year prior were now trying to figure out what part-time job they had to pick up or even full-time job and getting out of the industry of real estate. Um, I went through treatment. Uh, it was not as bad as, as uh, future experiences that I would have, but I did go through chemotherapy. I did go through radiation. And at that time, just like everything, bills pile up, things happen. I couldn't pay my mortgage. It was a really hard time for me in my life. And I had to hit rock bottom. I ended up losing my home. I ended up losing my cars. And I ended up claiming bankruptcy because I didn't have the income. The hamster, myself, couldn't get the wheel keep, to keep going because I was too sick. And I was going through treatment to actually do work. So I pretty much lost everything. I was married at the time, struggles with your relationship, etc. So when I came back in 2008, after I beat it, I had a renewed focus and had a very different way of how I was going to handle my business. Let's talk about that. Talk about what 2008, 2009 looked like for you, because we know this is 
a huge shift in the business. Um, I was in the title world, you know, uh, running a branch at this time and we got really good <laughs> at working short sales and, and, uh, under, understanding that, uh, that, that process. Is that where you were at as well? Yeah. I mean, the market was shifting. There was a lot of changes that were happening and you could see that people had to be nimble and adjust to the business that was at hand. And what I really spent some time doing was figuring out how I could be better. I, I was going through coaching at the time. I had spent some money on coaching and it was a traditional kind of old school way of thinking that you have to have 99 no's before you get your yes. You've probably heard those types of trainers before Yeah. and coaching. And I thought this doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel good. I don't like it. And instead of scripts and dialogues, I started really learning about NLP, neuro linguistic programming and understanding the other side of the person that I'm talking to. And by spending that time and really focusing on what their needs were, you know, the golden rule versus the platinum rule. Golden rule is treat people how you would want to be treated. Platinum rule, treat people how they would want to be treated. And I started really adapting the platinum rule. And my closing ratio started increasing. So with my listing presentations, instead of getting one out of every 10 or two out of every 10, I was getting like seven out of every 10. And it was just from preparation and understanding, getting set up before I walked in the door and knowing what I wanted to say, not winging it. And I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly lucky that I've been able to have a way to communicate and be well-spoken. It's one of my very few skills that I have. Um, and if I thought, if I could just prepare and add to that, imagine how more effective I could be. And, and it worked. And so I was going on less appointments and getting more of those. So not only was I handling some of the REO business and the short sell business, but I was going out and working with regular buyers and regular sellers and equity people and investors. And I built my business and it grew faster than I could imagine. Um, prior to 2008, the most I'd ever sold was 29 houses in a year. And in 2008, I was building a team and I was growing to keep up with me. And we did over 240 transactions in one year. Wow. So at 10 times amount that I'd ever done before. And right. I think I attributed it to focus and just being prepared this time around. Who are you with at this time? Are you at Keller Williams? At that time, yeah. I just switched over to Keller Williams in 2006, got sick. Uh, 2007, I spent time rec uh, recuperating and then KW from 2008 forward. In, in, um, in some weird, you know, twist of fate, you, you're struck by cancer again, a much tougher fight. This is, we're talking about 2012 range right now where it's a stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. I know you as an incredibly positive guy. I've seen your presentations and I just, how did, how, how did you handle this next, uh, this next bout? Was it attacked the same way? Uh, I want, I mean, were there moments of doubt? How, let's talk about, as a, as a fellow cancer survivor, I love to hear these stories. I think they help people listening so they understand it's different for everybody. And I want to know how it was for you. When you beat cancer the first time, you pre you feel pretty invincible. You don't really worry about it again. I was in my early 20s, or excuse me, my late 20s, and I beat cancer, right? Now, background for me, both my parents passed away when I was very young. My mother passed away when I was five from colon cancer at the age of 40. 
So I grew up without parents and I didn't know what was hereditary and what wasn't and what was passed down and leave it to the medical field to tell that side of the story. I don't know much about that part, but I will tell you that second time around, I found a lump in my neck and I didn't know what it was, but I was having trouble breathing, but you just ignore it. You know, I'm in my early thirties. I'm selling a lot of real estate. I'm focused. I'm doing that kind of thing. And the more I'm realizing that I'm having trouble breathing, I can't walk as far as I used to. And you know, I, I'm fairly fit at the time. I'm not overweight. I'm eating like a regular person. I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. So you just kind of ignore some of the symptoms. Well, there was a point where I was walking and I couldn't go 50 feet without being able to stop and catch my breath. And I was like, what is going on? So I went to the doctor to just kind of find out what was going on. I go to the same doctor. I've had the same doctor for 20 years. And he was the one that found the first bout of cancer for me. So I go in there, I do some scans. And at the time I had moved to Southern California to live in LA and the Redondo Beach area. And I went back up north to Northern California to go to my doctor. And my doctor says, you know, don't go back home. Don't go back to LA. We want to finish these tests. We think we found some stuff. I'll call you tomorrow. Or actually, this is a Friday. I'll call you on Monday to do the test. Yeah, that's a restful weekend, right? Right. Don't worry. I I found a bunch of stuff. Let's talk Monday. Oh, great. Okay, I'll, I'll be sure to sleep it off this weekend. So already you're freaking out about what is this in my body that he's finding. I go into the doctor on Monday, I sit down in the doctor's office, he comes in and it's dead silent between the two of us, we're not talking. I turn and I say, is it back? And he just nods his head, yes. And I said, is it worse? And he nods his head, yes. And I remember falling to the ground on my hands and knees in the doctor's office and thinking to myself, why does this keep happening to me? What, what is going on with me? I treat myself well. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I'm, I don't abuse drugs. I, I do everything. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Am I destined to this same fate as my mother? And I remember turning to the doctor and saying to him, I don't want to know the odds. Just talk, let's start the treatment. What do we need to do? So even though the doctor was had the numbers and told me and was ready to tell me what my diagnosis was, I didn't even care. I told him, don't even tell me. So let's get to me to a cancer doctor and oncologist. Let's create the plan and I'll figure out what it was and diagnose later. And he said, okay. So I went to UCLA Med Center. I met with a very young doctor that I wanted to work with. And he put the plan together. And I said, do not tell me what my diagnosis is. Do not tell me how many tumors it is. I just want to go. Let's do this. And I think, Bill, what happened was by not knowing my fate, by not having somebody tell me what it was, I didn't know how dire my odds were because I didn't know. And if you want to know, I'll tell you what it is now. But had I found out then, it would have been probably life-altering for me. But the final numbers was this. I had 41 tumors in my body. I was given 30% chance of survival within one year and a 100% mortality rate within three years. I was dying. I was dying. And what happened was, is that by not knowing, I just attacked and I just went through it. And I went through 13 months of chemo. I went through 10 months of chemo without even knowing what my diagnosis was. Only after when I went through the 
backstage of my chemo when my doctor says, you know what, Emran, you're doing really well. You're going to beat this. I can't believe it. Do you want to know what your statistics were? And I said, yeah. And then he told me. And I was blown away. And the thing about it is that they can only test people like me that have the same scenario, but they never tested Emran Pilati. <laughs> so I was not going to resign myself to the fate of other people. I was going to resign myself to the choice that I made personally and mentally and spiritually and all the things that I needed for me. And here I am. It's uh, coming up on 2018 and I'm more than five years cancer free. Uh, congratulations. Uh, that's, that's all I want to tell you right now. That's amazing. Let me switch this up a little bit. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the things you do in the industry because you're, you're really active at the local and the state level, uh, the association level, right, for California and for, for, for the Northern California area. Talk about why it's so important you to volunteer. Just so that way there's context to what I did. I was uh, the association president for my 2,800-person association. Uh, I was the youngest president at the time. There's been a gentleman that's now younger that has served as president in my association. He did a great job. Um, I served on a state level as a, as a California Association of Realtors director for many years. Uh, I was the Young Professional Network chair for the state of California. I did some NER work. I, I did a lot of that volunteer work. And, and the reason why I continue to give and feel like I wanted to contribute on that level was because Somebody did that for me. So Sam Ruiz took me under his wing. And what he did was he showed a kid that had no formal education, barely graduated high school, how to sell real estate to where me and my team in 2009 sold over $40 million in real estate in a city with an average sales price of 120. Why did the guy do that? Because that was his calling. That's what he wanted to do. And I feel like when you have somebody in your life that does that for you, you need to step back and figure out when does, when is it my turn to do that? And I felt like over the last few years, it was my chance to help out people in the industry and, and be that person like Sam was for me. Cause that's important. I want to make sure that whatever I learn, I can pass along to somebody else and then have them run with it and be better. Just like what I did with Sam. And that's really important to me. And at the time, uh, it's different now because I have a company that I'm a part of and the ownership and, and what we build there. But at the time, I was just not, I didn't have that company of people to, to give that knowledge to. So I would just give it to everybody. You know, anybody that would listen to me and needed help, I was there to help. Let's talk a little bit about that decision to move into franchise, the, like the franchise management side of the industry. How, how tough was it to make that move? So originally, the idea was is that I was going to be uh, in management because I was burned out from selling. And when you go on 50 listing appointments every month, it's exhausting. And uh, the people that do it and love it, uh, congratulations. I love that enthusiasm and determination. But for me personally, very difficult. And I ended up moving towards working with investors. But the whole the whole journey of actually working and doing that was very difficult for me uh, over time, especially after... Um, I really destroyed my relationship with my wife who has become my ex-wife and like the, the things that I needed to do as a person were 
modified because I was working so much. So by stepping back, I went into management and I really like leading and helping other people be better in coaching. So I went into to management and at a young age, uh, Keller Williams, even though I don't work there anymore, did me a real favor by allowing me to work in leadership at a young age, whereas may, maybe other companies would have never given me that chance. I learned a lot from that side. And the more that I learned about uh, working with agents and helping them and helping them be better in their lives, the ones that I always noticed that needed the most help were brokers. The ones that were running the brokerage, that signed the lease for the location, that put their name on the door, that put their name on the on the line when it came to having agents represented in their company. And I thought to myself, there's really nobody helping on that level. So when I was working, I happened to work for a company called Harcourts, working in the franchise level, working with brokers, um, right before I got sick with the second time. And one of my very best friends by the name of James Dwakins was starting a company in Northern California called Next Home. It was a company that Nobody had ever heard of before. He was just barely creating it. And he was going to create a franchise that made sense to help these mid to small size brokers. And you got to remember, James was there for me when I was going through my stage four cancer. He had raised money to help me pay for some of my medical treatment. The guy is a, a saint and somebody that I hold dear to my heart even to this day. And when James said that this opportunity was available and Emron, would you like to, like he didn't even finish the sentence. And I was like, I'm in. Like he could have said janitor and I already committed to him, right? right. It didn't matter because it was James and it was my friend and I wanted to go through that journey with him. And when he offered me the position of vice president of business development, it really spoke to my strengths of being able to work with brokers and help them be able to run a brokerage and retain great agents and bring talented new people on board and run a profitable business. And I wanted to make sure that the word broker didn't describe what they were to their agents broker than their agent. To me, I wanted to make sure that they ran a thriving business that they were proud of, that gave them the income that made sense for them to step away from sales and run a company. And so that's that's been my passion. I've been doing it the last three years. And I work with every single broker that comes onto our company in helping them with their P&Ls and recruiting and all the things that you could think of running a brokerage. I work with our agents and, and brokers on that standpoint. I've had the uh, pleasure of meeting a couple of them here in the uh, Tampa area. We'll call it the Gulf Coast area. Uh, Anand Patel here in Tampa and uh, Jason and Rebecca down in uh, Fort Myers. And it's really cool to talk to these people about what you're doing at Next Home. Uh, and if I had to give you the, my, my favorite kind of core feature of what Next Home does is how consumer-centric the focus is, right, of the entire company. And that let's talk about that process. I want to know the story and how that kind of developed. Well, the company Next Home was created because the founders, and I happen to be one of the people that started with the company at its infancy, we were really tired of the way that we were watching things done. And we looked and saw uh, franchising in a way to where everybody complained about the company that they were affiliated with. And they were talking about how they didn't get any real value out of it. And one of the number one things that people said was, well, the reason why I'm affiliated with this franchise is because of name recognition. And I go, that, I get that. I understand that. But what more do you get from that? Well, not much. So you're paying money for what the company used to do that brings you the name value now. What about the today value? 
And we realized that there was an opportunity there for some today value. And even though we were a new company and we were just starting, we knew that we could bring a lot of tools, technology value that would help our agents be better. And the one thing that I learned when I was at my different companies that I worked, I've jumped three times to Keller Williams, to Harcourts, and now finally to Next Home, which is my final home. The one thing that I noticed about realtors is that they tend to forget that the clients are more impressed about their home and how it's in, how it's showcased and getting top value and best offer for their home rather than making sure that their agent's face was on their sign and that their arms were folded or they're holding a cell phone telling them everything I turn turns into sold or holding their dog in the sign and saying we're both house trained. I mean, these are all things that I've seen, <laughs> right? Just ridiculous yeah. stuff. And what happens is it takes the focus away from the seller and their needs and they bring it back to look at me. And we thought there's got to be a way that we can make sure that the seller feels good about the marketing that's done, the efforts that are put into selling their home to where the focus is the home itself and the features and benefits of the home rather than the agent and this, you know, the face that they're holding the phone on the sign. I want to make sure that they feel good about the branding that's used in order to market their properties or that we're using tools and technology that leads qualified buyers back to the agent to make sure that they have the right people walking through that home or showcasing it online. So what we did was we took a lot of the things that we do and we, we tested it. We asked consumers, Hey, would you put this in your yard? No. Okay. What would you change? All right. I would do this and we'd do this and we'd do that. Okay, great. And we'd we'd revise, send it back out. What about this sign? Oh, I love it. What do you like about it? And we spent a lot of time, money and effort perfecting the way that the brand looked. We wanted to make it look fresh. We wanted to make it focused on the client. And I think a lot of companies don't start with that. They think of what do I think looks cool rather than going back to the seller and saying, is this something that you would love in your yard to feel really have that focus on your, on your property? So we started with working with them first, having focus groups, test groups, et cetera. And then once we felt good about it, we rolled it out. And fortunately, it's worked. It's working very well. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing next home signs <laughs> popping up all over the country. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, we're fortunate. You know, we, we've been able to really expand the brand. Uh, we started with zero offices on December 31st, 2014. And when we first launched January 1st, 2015, a little after midnight, we had two offices sign with us and we grew and we grew. And our, our goals were, you know, if we could grow to 30 offices nationwide, we'd be very happy in our first year. Well, we didn't hit our goal. We smashed it. Um, people loved the concept of what we had, which was that mid to small size brokerage that anywhere from two agents to 15 agent size that we targeted that many of the larger franchises stayed away from because of they wanted a larger brokerage. So these mid to small size brokerages were ignored. And if you think about it, it always starts with statistics and measuring twice and cutting once. So when we looked at the numbers, I remember it like it was yesterday. We looked and said, how much? How many brokerages are independent? Let's just start with them. What's out there? And like six or seven out of ten brokerages were independents, not affiliated with any franchise in any way, nationwide. So okay, cool, good start. Okay, how many of those are less than ten agents? Well, 
the majority, like 65% of those brokerages were 10 agents or less. Huge. Right. And then we looked and said, well, do they even do any business? 46% of the business was done by independent brokerages in the U.S. And we said, there's our market. There's the hole in the market for us to be able to solve. And so we targeted that. Our first year, we did right around 70 offices nationwide. Our second year in 2016, we grew it by about 110 offices. And now we're sitting at the end of 2017 on roughly about 260 offices, uh, 41 states. And we've announced an office a week for over two and a half years. Once again, congratulations. And, I, and now I've, I've had you well over the half hour I've asked of your time. So I, I really appreciate you taking a moment to step aside and, and share your story. But I, but I want to ask you the same question I've asked every, every guest on the podcast. And that's, um, I know right now you're doing, you know, you focus on helping brokers be better business owners and run a business. But you remember being a, an agent and you remember what it was like being a new agent. So if you could give one piece of advice to, to a brand new agent just getting started in the industry, what would it be? You have an 82% chance of being out of this business in one year. That's an NAR statistic. That if you get your license today, there's an 82% chance that you're out of this business in one year. And I would say that instead of looking and seeing what the 18% are doing to be successful, not just looking at that, but I want you to look at the habits of the 82% that are failing, right? So you got to remember my background, Bill. The most expensive home I've ever sold, the highest price home I've ever sold is $388,000. In all of my transactions I've ever been a part of, all 1,100 of them, the highest price was 388. And I should tell you that I sold a lot of Baltics and very little boardwalks. And for me, that means that every single dollar that I spent in marketing had to mean something because I had small margins. I couldn't make mistakes. I couldn't have the drone that flew in and I created a movie. I didn't have that. So I had to be very, very specific about spending my money and understanding what I was going to spend it on. And when my broker and I first started, when I first started in the business, my broker said, Emran, Mailers is the way to go. Door knocking is the way to go. Open houses are the way to go. And I spent all my money and all my time doing all that stuff. And at the end of my first year of 14 transactions, when I look back at it, zero of that business came from door knocking and zero came from those stupid mailers. Where the business came from was the belly to belly actually speaking to people and asking them if they would want to work with you. And so many people want to go to marketing and spend that money. Instead of prospecting, because marketing means I can send this stuff out and I don't have to face rejection. The difference between marketing and prospecting is prospecting says, Bill, will you use me? And I have to sit there while I could potentially get rejected back. And people find that painful, so they don't do it and they'd rather just market. So if you're brand new and you're listening right now, I want you to step back and I want you to really focus on how do I make sure that I'm actually prospecting and not just spending money on marketing? That's what I would tell new people. Tell other people, you know, people, other people in the business that have been in there longer, totally different advice. But if, if I was to talk to somebody brand new in the business, that's what I would tell them. Imran, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
So just like any Gen Xer that acts like a millennial, <laughs> um, the the order of importance of getting a hold of me is simple. Facebook first, Instagram second. So Facebook, you can find me, facebook.com slash Emron Pilati. That's I am like Michael, R-A-N, like Nathan, P like Paul, O-L-A-D-I. So Emron Pilati. Uh, Instagram, the Emron Pilati. And then you can email me, emron at nexthome.com. Emron, thank you so much for your time and, and the, the stories you share here today. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing you again, uh, hopefully soon at a conference somewhere. Um, I'm sure that our, our paths will cross again. Hey, I owe you a hot chocolate the next time I see you. Thanks for having me on. It's a lot of fun talking to you. You make it easy and nice and conversational. And I'm honored to be a part of your podcast.